A very good morning, afternoon or evening to you, wherever you might be, and a warm welcome to our new show, The Three Misses, abbreviated to The Three M's, the show where we peel back the layers of misunderstanding and misinterpretation that lead to misinformation. My name is Ian Ingalls and I shall be your host. I hail from the UK but have been living in China for nigh on 20 years where I work as a television presenter. I'm delighted to be joined today by my two fellow old China hands, as I shall be every show, uh, any luck, and they are Jerry Gray and Fernando Munoz. Why don't you say hello to the folks at home? Hi, everyone. Hola, como están? <laughs> Each show, we hope to keep to this winning format, whereby I pick the brains of this illustrious pair and we dissect various topical news stories pertaining to China. So without further ado, let's turn to the task at hand. I notice of late that the issue or non-issue of the quote-unquote Xinjiang genocide has been resurrected by certain Western media outlets. Uh, while uh, perusing some of the uh, fanciful fabrications about this, I came upon that bill uh, introduced by the United States Congress, uh, I, th I think it was last year, wasn't it, called the Uyghur Policy Act of 2023. So um, I haven't read many bills like this in my life, but it, it does uh, strike me as um, quite vague um, and several points within it uh, really sort of uh, rang some bells. So um, firstly, what I thought was uh, rather interesting was that it cites credible evidence. So it says that credible evidence from human rights organizations, think tanks, journalists, etc., cetera, uh, basically uh, point to the fact that uh, a million Uyghurs and members of other Muslim ethnic minority groups uh, have been interred in political re-education centres. So firstly, it says that there's credible evidence, but it doesn't cite any. So as a reader of this document, that didn't seem particularly credible in itself. But what's more, um, referring to political re-education centres, at least for me, sounds quite sinister and, you know, harks back to Stalin's Soviet Union, the Gulag and all of that. What did you make of this, Jerry? Well, it's not so much what I make of it. I've actually heard that there's three million Uyghurs in custody now, which uh, is completely ridiculous. Um, I've traveled through the region and I know that's not true. CGTN did an excellent refute of this and I will link it. Now, I can go through all the things that I know, but CGTN did an excellent refute. So it's probably worth looking at that. There are no such things as political re-education centers. There's nothing. There's not even a re-education center. What they do have, as they have throughout China, are vocational training centers. And people have been taken to those vocational training centers, mostly voluntarily. Some of them came out of prison, and this was part of their rehabilitation program. So every person who has been interviewed, whether that be staff, whether that be the teachers, or even the, the, the students who've been through there have all talked highly of what they experienced in there. Nobody has come out and said, I was tortured, I was uh, abused. None of this has ever happened or been recorded. And there have been hundreds, literally hundreds of journalists and hundreds of diplomats, mostly from Islamic countries, that have gone through and checked on this. Now, that's all been well refuted. But one other point that I want to make about evidence is that I'm a former police officer. If I put evidence before the court as I think or I believe, 
the court would simply throw out my case. Evidence needs to be corroborated. It needs to be supported. There needs to be some kind of forensics to support it. And if, it, if there is no forensics, if it's simply the case of somebody's word, then that needs to be cross-examined and checked. And none of that has been done. And certainly none of that has been done under oath, where there is a potential punishment for telling a lie. So the evidence that we have are not is not evidence whatsoever. The word is allegations, and they are unproven allegations until such time as there's evidence to support them. And right now, there is not, there's no evidence. So basically, to date, they got nothing. Yeah? Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So the bill goes on uh, to uh, call upon the government of the People's Republic of China to, to open up Xinjiang, which I found uh, a little bit puzzling. Um, it says that it would like regular, transparent and unmanipulated visits by members of the press, okay, members of the Congress, congressional staff delegations, and, uh, which I found quite significant, the United States Special Coordinator for Uyghur Issues. Now, why they have such a special coordinator, I don't know, but very kind of them to show such concern. I'm sure you'd agree. So it makes it sound as though Xinjiang has been sort of placed under lock and key. Now, if my memory serves, I think Xinjiang, apart from maybe a short period after a, a spate of um, terrorist attacks, when there were some security measures in place, but Xinjiang is open to anybody and everybody who would care to board an airplane or a train to go there for themselves. Isn't that the case, Fernando? Well, it is important to question if they haven't visited, they haven't talked to people, they haven't gone there. How did they get to these findings? How did they get to these conclusions? That's the first thing that I would like to say. Now, the second thing is, the fact is, no U.S. government official, no embassy official from the United States or the U.K. or Australia, and no Congress member of the United States has visited Xinjiang or has researched the region. This is fact. The second thing is not a single leader from Xinjiang's uh, community or for Xinjiang's government, academia or religious leader has been consulted, has been has been talked to by members of Congress or by members of uh, the U.S. government or even the team of uh, uh, at the emb embassies in Beijing. So it leads us to think, um, why is that? Why haven't they gone there? Why haven't they done the research? Which they can. They can go there, no problem. Short figure, 2023, there have been 265 million tourists in Xinjiang. Only in 2023, that's almost the three quarters of the population of the United States have visited Xinjiang in that one year. That's a 117% increase year on year. So Xinjiang is open. Now, the other thing to uh, talk about is the people who have gone there. There have been dozens after dozens of um, Islamic leaders from around the world who have visited Xinjiang, who have conducted some researches, who have visited the different projects and um, development that takes place in the region. And their comments have been praises for what China has done in the region. Now, that is not covered by media. You should wonder why. The other thing is journalists, they want openness. They want journalists to be able to go there. Well, the truth of the matter is that, again, 
hundreds and hundreds of journalists from around the world have visited Xinjiang, have reported on the culture, the economy, the development, uh, the security, and the only ones who have reported who have reportedly negatively about it are just a handful of Western media such as CNN, BBC, and Vice. And this is a very clear example of the three misses, the, the misinterpretation of the efforts that the government has made to develop the region. Take, for example, what Jerry was talking about earlier, the vocational training centers. They paint them as something of a negative impact. But when you consider that these training centers, these vocational training um, uh, institutions are necessary to give the people the skills that are required to embrace this new investment, this new development that is coming into the region. That is the main plan to elaborate more on the education and the skill level of the students, uh, of the residents, so that they can actually have a better life and get better jobs and improve the development of the region. Without those then the investors will not come. And without the investors, the development is going to slow down or just not happen at all. So this twisting of what the government is doing to make it look bad, it's on the journalists. Journalists can go, journalists can report on what's taking place. But when they have twisted what they see, then you need to wonder, what can we do to to show the reality without the filter that is given by Western media. Mm, there's one more thing. So, yes, when they ask for um, openness to Xinjiang, I don't really know what to say. Xinjiang is open. Members of the embassies can go. Journalists can go. Tourists can go. They make efforts to limit the travel agencies that are arranging trips to Xinjiang from Europe and other places. And then again, you should ask yourself why that is. So this point about openness is kind of a moot point. Xinjiang is open. In this show, I'm going to introduce to you, or we're going to introduce to you, one or two interesting facts every show, which we're going to call the Did You Know section. For example... Did you know that in 1944, on November the 7th, to be precise, Patrick Hurley, the personal envoy of President Roosevelt, came to China and sat down with Chairman Mao to agree a five-point system of how China would be governed after the war. It was set up that they would have a complete review and a democratic process that Chairman Mao has agreed to sign President Roosevelt agreed to Patrick Hurley signed the document on his behalf. The only person who wouldn't sign it was Chiang Kai-shek of the KMT because he realized that if he entered a democratic process, the KMT would not and could not win an election. And as a result of him refusing to sign that, we had a civil war. After the civil war, the KMT lost the war and went off to Taiwan. And that is why we have a single party system instead of a multi-party democracy here in China. That's a fact. And it's from State Department information, not from Chinese documentation. Go check it out. It's true. 
Well, fancy that. Despite all my years in China, I really never knew that. So basically, this bill is looking pretty flimsy then, isn't it? And uh, I think one thing that struck me as uh, particularly hollow, Jerry, was uh, it's urging countries with sizable Muslim populations, and then I'm quoting now, given commonalities in their religious and cultural identities, to demonstrate concern over the plight of the Uyghurs. Um, this sudden concern for Muslims is, well, I, I don't know what I term it as, comically tragic or tragically comic, and, and rings particularly hollow given what the US has done in the Middle East, which is, you know, a Muslim majority region, and given what Israel is doing in Palestine now. Palestine being, of course, mostly a um, Muslim state or, or territory. So do you think that the timing of the resurgence of this genocide spiel is, um, shall we say, interesting? And could it be used to sort of deflect attention uh, from what is going on now, in other words, a genocide being carried out against the Palestinians with the blessing of the US um, and towards its old foe, um, China. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. You're spot on with this one. And the reason I think this is because what has been totally, totally ignored is that in January of last year, just after the COVID restrictions were lifted, 30 Islamic leaders visited Xinjiang. They spoke to people in Xinjiang. They spoke to people in the streets. They went to the mosques. They spoke to the religious leaders. They met with academics. They met with people, ordinary people, and they stayed for a few days in Xinjiang. And they reported positively. That's been entirely ignored by the Western media. You may see, oh, uh, the, some of the headlines that I saw were that Islamic leaders tow the party line or something like that. But these are genuine Muslim leaders looking at a Muslim community and saying, this is going okay. Everything is good here. Those same Islamic leaders are now absolutely outspoken on the Gaza issue, the same Islamic leaders. Now, that was one occasion. That was January 2022. But in August 2022, a further 32 Islamic leaders went to Xinjiang and did the same thing. So there, in one year, we've had more than 60 Islamic leaders go and talk to all the people they wanted to talk to. They visited the mosques. They've seen the universities. They've seen the vocational training schools. They have done everything and they have been entirely ignored. So when the West says, oh, the Islamic community are suspiciously quiet on this, it's only because they refuse to report the fact that the Islamic community are extremely loud about this, but it's not in mainstream media. Pick up any Chinese media, you'll find it. Pick up Al Jazeera. If you pick up any Middle East monitor, you'll find this information is available. It's just not in English language Western media. So what we call mainstream media is completely ignoring the truth whilst promoting a lie. This is misinformation. This is absolutely misinformation. This is not a mistake. This is misinformation. Well, it is seeming then that this bill is uh, somewhat disingenuous and um, perhaps politically motivated, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> um, yeah, other things that I think are cause for a certain suspicion are the way in which it uh, encourages close ties and contact between uh, Uyghur religion 
religious, cultural and political leaders, uh, and also um, regular travel by members of Congress to, to the Xinjiang region and even aid and um, also a call to ensure that prisoners, as they're called, are not being mistreated and are receiving necessary medical care, which is really, you know, really kind of them to do that. I mean, I mean firstly, um, why wouldn't Congress members want to go or, or these groups want to go to Xinjiang to engage in what kind of activity? Um, and, and a second thing, um, it, sort of giving aid to rights activists or um, advocates, whatever they call them, does hark back a little bit for me to the, nine, the 2019 Hong Kong riots when apparently front groups were, were used there for funneling money uh, from various groups to disrupt uh, Hong Kong social order or indeed a colour revolution, wherever that might be. I mean, Fernando, is this is this simply just barefaced meddling in China's internal affairs? You bet it is meddling in Chinese uh, internal affairs. I have a few names to list here. Number one, Victoria Nolan and what she did in the Ukraine, right? And the Maidan Revolution in 2014. Um, just recently, uh, the video that was shared about Azhurkov in Russia meeting with MI6, asking for 20 million uh, a year in order to promote their movement, uh, DA or DA, yeah, um, which is basically um, Navalny's um, political party. This kind of meddling is done all over the world by the United States, but we could talk about what they did in China. For example, the two Michaels, that's not exactly US, it's Canada, but spy agencies were working in China and they had been dismantled. Now, what about Hong Kong? We all heard Jimmy Lai, right, saying, oh, we want CIA, we love the CIA. Oh, America can fix this. They can nuke China uh, in one minute. Oh, we're fighting this war for you. So that's clearly foreign interference into um, China. What about Joshua Wong? going to meet with Nancy Pelosi, meeting in the US Congress. What about um, this guy, um, Brian Kern, as you've seen in many, many posts uh, all over social media, all these Americans with earpieces giving advice and giving recommendations to um, these kids in Hong Kong that were causing terror in the city. So if that doesn't speak of CIA interference or, or meddling with China, I don't know what to tell you. And we can just finish up with Taiwan. Taiwan is a slow motion invasion into China. You cannot speak of one China and you cannot speak of China's sovereignty when you have uh, armament, American armament, on the island when you have diplomatic visits which are against the Shanghai communique and troops, troops in the island that are permanent now, as close as 20 kilometers from, um, from uh, Fujian, the province in China, in Kinmen Island. So that's, that's what we're talking about. Do, do we want that kind of meddling into China? I think that that's the question. Now, when people talk about this kind of cooperation with China, you need to be very careful with the fact that 
CIA has been dismantled in China and they want to rebuild that organization. This is just one excuse. And Xinjiang, well, is an area that they have been looking to uh, destabilize for a very long time. They were mightily successful in the early 2000s, but now they've been kicked out. And those are the people that are talking outside in public because their plight, their their fight has been um, rendered neutral. It's just neutralized. Now there's peace. There hasn't been a single terrorist uh, attack in Xinjiang <clears throat> since 2017. And now with regards to aid, you would ask yourself, okay, what aid do they need? Think about what China is doing with the BRI, the Bantal Road Initiative. China is the one helping other countries in the global south. They can help other countries. Do you think they cannot help their own region that matters so much to them? As I've said in many, many occasions, Xinjiang is the future of China. The future of China goes through Xinjiang. So, yeah. They don't need aid. China is more than capable to provide all the aid, all the development, all the support, all the investment, all the infrastructure that Xinjiang needs to well become that link to Eura uh, to the Eurasian um, Commerce Railway. It's uh, it's where a lot of the goods made in China and some of them made in Xinjiang will travel through all the way to Europe and Central Asia. So yeah. They don't need aid. They get all the aid that they need from China, a country that's powerful enough to provide aid to the global south. So, yeah, I don't know where they're coming from with this. So basically, the deeper we delve into this, the more nefarious uh, it seems. Um, well, another point that to me, well, actually, this uh, is a longstanding narrative, and, and that is this. So that Han Chinese, that's the China ethnic majority uh, that makes up roughly 90, 91% of the whole population, has been encouraged to immigrate, to migrate into the Xinjiang region as a deliberate policy aimed at, uh, I don't know, controlling uh, local ethnic minority groups and, you know, just to stop them from getting any ideas and watering down their sort of linguistic cultural identity this this has been a sort of a trope that has been regurgitated many times in western media stories so firstly jerry i'd like to ask you uh how much if any truth is in this and and if if han migration into say the xinjiang region is not good then what kind of immigration is good for example you know uh people from central and south america moving across the united states southern border for example is that okay no. In fact, um, the approach of China has been to encourage immigration into Xinjiang for basically one major reason, and that's to improve opportunities. It's not there to dilute the minorities in the region. It's there to enhance their opportunities. So many business leaders were encouraged, go into Xinjiang, start your factory, build a factory there. Xinjiang has been described as being now an indispensable part of the global supply chain because it is the route 
or route if you prefer, across China and into Eurasia and Europe by train and by road. So Xinjiang is, this is one of the reasons for the, the why people would like to destabilize it. If you're going to destabilize the major overland route out of China, you're going to get some success if you want to destabilize China. So there is that. And the minorities were actually exempt from the family planning policy. This is another did you know. It was never called the one child policy. It was called the family planning policy. Only the West called it one child. And for, for 40 years, the local in the last 40 years, the local population has grown from 4.3 million Uyghurs to 11 million Uyghurs. And China issued a white paper about this. And the information contained in this white paper has never, ever been challenged. The population now is 25.8 million people, 14.9 million are ethnic minorities, and that includes the 11 point something million Uyghurs. Their health outcomes are excellent, infant and, and maternal mortality are both down, whilst life expectancy is up, it's currently 74.7 years, comparative to, according to the CDC, with America, the richest and most developed country in the world is 76 years, 1.3 years more. And so that's likely that I think in Xinjiang, we will have a higher life expectancy rate than America at the time of the next census. So completely the opposite to what has been suggested, that this is causing some kind of uh, genocide or persecution. It's flourishing. The region is flourishing in terms of its GDP, in terms of its economy, and in terms of its population and the health outcomes of those of the population. So exactly the opposite of what the West are saying is the truth. And the World Bank knows this. It's reported on this. And China issued a white paper, which I will link, which will tell you all of this. All of it is statistically proven fact, not made up like Congress are doing. I would like to to add one thing to this particular topic. Go back to the reform and opening up 1979. Go back to the early 2000s when I arrived here and when you guys also arrived here. There was something called the special economic zone in Shenzhen. Basically, what that meant was people from all over China would come to Shenzhen, obviously with help from the government and different projects and different programs that brought these people to Guangdong in order to develop uh, factories and uh, uh, OEMs and businesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's how they developed Guangdong and all the east coastal areas of China by bringing migrants into these areas. So does that mean that they're trying to dilute the Cantonese culture? Does that mean that they were trying to dilute the Hakka culture? Uh, no, but the problem is now they're doing the same to develop the West to develop Xinjiang and because it's Xinjiang they don't like it they've made millions and millions Guangdong China the South has made many billionaires in the West and many billionaires and millionaires in China and now they want to do the same in Xinjiang but that doesn't that's not something that the West would like so that's my two cents well, right. I mean, a, a classic case of uh, taking an observable phenomenon and turning it on its head uh, to suit your own political ends. Yeah. So war is peace, as right. I think George Orwell said. <laughs> Speaking of which, last question Indeed. coming up.
Um, I notice also in the um, bill, it actually mentions the war on terror. And it says specifically, I'll just quote this, I found this fascinating. The authorities of the People's Republic of China have manipulated the strategic objectives of the international war on terror to mask their increasing cultural and religious oppression of the Muslim population residing in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Now, I looked at that and I thought, was China even ever part of the war on terror? I mean, was that not a US sort of uh, construct concept anyway? And that was used specifically for their sort of to explain or to justify their you know invasion decimation take your pick of you know afghanistan libya iraq etc etc i mean was china ever a party to the war on terror fernando look uh before i answer what china's strategic objective would be let's talk about the u.s strategic objective uh around the world and their war on terror this is just manipulation. It is used as a cover to control resources like Syrian oil. We've all heard Donald Trump talk about, oh, I want the oil. I like oil. I want to get the oil. Uh, or to topple governments, as they've done around the world for a long, long time. So this war on terror is used and manipulated. Now, through that process, they've killed tens of millions of people many muslims which they seem to defend and care about nowadays when they are in china and they've made hundreds of millions of enemies around the globe in that process so contrast that to what we could call china's strategic objective in xinjiang which is basically a war on extremism extremism and separatism that's it is that simple i challenge anyone to show me videos or evidence of any kind of bombing like we see in gaza or of dismembered children or people or entire families on the rubble uh, there's there's nothing like that taking place the strategic objective was hey let's get security again so that was heavy and that needed to take place to stop the terrorism which is there's tons of evidence and proof and as jerry mentioned earlier cgtn has also done a documentary about that the truth of the terrorism from these extremist groups in xinjiang so number one let's get security number two let's get some education so that people can get jobs and well poverty alleviation projects from um, inviting investment and uh, creating new small enterprises and tourism, etc. So all these things that help people have a better life and not remain idle because idle minds find time for trouble. So all these things that have been done um, are basically the strategy. Now, they seem to be working. As we mentioned earlier, there haven't been any terror attacks since 2017. However, what we're seeing right now with this um, attempts at blocking some of the companies that are using supplies that are produced in Xinjiang, like Volkswagen, like um, uh, Bentley, like Porsche. Now, this Uyghur Policy Act is hoping to stop these imports, these products coming into America, claiming that they had been made with forced labor in Xinjiang. There is no proof of this. The only thing that we see out there in the media is somebody in one of these companies said, we went out of the region. Now, when you think about we went out of the region, 
Why would that be? These companies are finding extreme competition in China because of, well, it has become now the number one car exporter in the world. And not only are they having trouble with this competition, now if they cannot sell their products in other countries because America and its allies are going to say, hey, you made a sticker or you use uh, some cotton from Xinjiang so you cannot sell your cars here, that is going to force these companies to not die on the cross for Xinjiang. So they might just move out of Xinjiang. That doesn't mean move out of China. They will not let go of the Chinese market, which is so important to these automakers. They might just continue some of the efforts that they have around the country, like in Shenyang, for example, where it's a huge, huge place for BMW. So these companies are not going to leave China. They might just leave Xinjiang because they cannot sell their products based on the lies that are being told about Uyghur force labor in Xinjiang. So it, it's basically what we have learned again and again and again. You implement sanctions, baseless sanctions. America has every single right to pass whatever law they want in their country, right? But there's no base, there's no truth, there's no evidence or proof of Uyghur forced labor in any of these products. So what they're doing in the end is removing employment and income and uh, the livelihood of Uyghurs with these actions. Why do they do that? Why would they want to do that? Well, an impoverished population is easier to indoctrinate. Uh, a population that is unhappy is going to, well, be more susceptible to revolt or to complain or to start trouble. So it's, it's not a secret. Richard Nephew said it very clearly in his book, the act, uh, the art of sanctions. That's what they're trying to do. Now, what can China do about this? I would probably throw this question at Jerry. What do you think could be done from the China perspective to, to deal with this? Well, there's a couple of things, but before I answer that question, I want to make one valid point, I think. Have you noticed that Volkswagen, BASF, are in the news about leaving Xinjiang? Audi, Porsche, VW are all having trouble getting their products into America. Every single one of these is a German company. Now, there's something significant about that. Germany is just entering recession or has entered recession as a result of America's policies in Europe Germany has entered recession. Now America's policies in China, which is their only major market, are hurting Germany as much as they're hurting China. So there's something to be mentioned about that. Now, what can China do about it? I believe there are two options that they can do. One is, and we've discussed this before, Fernando, they need to take something, even if it's just the packaging, or a sticker that goes on the wheel of a car that is has the label made in Xinjiang, China, and then say to America, you either take it or leave it because you're not getting anything from China because it's all got some component of Xinjiang work in it. Everything. If we've, got, we've got cotton. We've got all kinds of uh, lithium and, and the other things. We've got the solar panels. We've got the tomatoes. Everything needs to have a packaging label that says, 
produced in Xinjiang, made in Xinjiang, packaged in Xinjiang, whatever it is. That's one aspect that they could do. And then America have got to take it or leave it. They're going to fill their shelves or they're not going to fill their shelves. End of story. The other thing I think, personally, they need uh, China needs to stop sending medicine to America. 83% of all the medicinal products that America uses in the most drug-using society in the world, 83% of their drugs start their life in China, either as a, a precursor or as the finished product. They come from China. So China needs to say, well, look, America, it's fine. You want us to stop fentanyl? We're going to stop fentanyl. More than a million fentanyl prescriptions are issued in America every week. A million fentanyl prescriptions. These are legitimate drugs that are used. So China just says, okay, let's stop fentanyl. Now, the world would clap its hand and say, well done, China. And America would have a civil war. Because the largest gun-owning population of drug-using people would not take this very kindly. So there's a couple of things China could do. But, Jerry, what do you think the likelihood is, genuinely, of China doing those things, either one of those options that you just laid out there? Zero percent. That's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I wish China would follow my advice, but I'm certain they won't. They will, they it's EDUC fighting. Sorry, yeah. it's EDUC fighting EDUC. There's another idea that, that Jerry um, <laughs> proposed, obviously jokingly, was to send every ship down to Cuba and then from Cuba go into the United States because, well, the particular embargo and the particular sanctions on Cuba uh, make it impossible for them to then receive their goods. Every single good coming out of China should just stop by Cuba before landing in Miami or wherever. That would be another way to just fight stupidity with stupidity. Yeah, ah, Cuba. So another place that they claim to be helping and claim to care so deeply about people's freedom they care about they just end up hurting them just like as you were saying fernando is happening in xinjiang right yep ah, I so fernando did you have any closing words at all now did you know that in 2022 chinese people saved 2.6 trillion us dollars that is more than the gdp of all but the top 10 countries around the world in nominal gdp that's the collapse for you and that wraps our first show of the three m's thank you both for your time and your insights it's been a, a genuinely eye-opening and highly informative experience talking to you today and thank you at home for watching feel free to comment in the space below press the like button share and above all subscribe to our channel see you next time for more china insights on the three m's